Welcome to the Jewish Mother Me podcast. My name's Angela Epstein. And I'm Lynn Dover. And today it is an enormous privilege to have with us Ike Alterman. He's one of the UK's few remaining Holocaust survivors. Ike has survived four death camps, including Auschwitz, and he was, became what was known as one of the Windermere boys. Um, he was a group of one of 700 Jewish children sent to Great Britain at the end of the war and went on to establish a life here, raise a family, become a very successful businessman. And we're talking to Ike here today at his home in Manchester with his uh, lovely partner, Diane, is with us too. Ike, the podcast that we do is the Jewish Mother Me podcast. So if you could paint, if you would, a picture of your mum, because you have quite a story to tell about how recently you finally had some closure on a terribly harrowing part of your life. So... What was her name and can you describe her to us? My, Your mother. my late mother, Chava Sora Bas She was a wonderful person as a mother. So many things that stand out in my, in my memory about her. And the most important thing, I think, is I believe that my mother has been my guiding angel all along. Even now? Even and today? Absolutely. What makes you say that? I, I feel, I mean, I've got no proof. This is just what I feel about my late mother, as the song, is that she's around me all the time. You were born in Ozaro. 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 Oh, that was my mother's hometown. And, yeah, and you were born there? It was only a small shtetl. And then uh, when I was still very young, we moved from my mother's hometown to my father's hometown, which was about 25 kilometers away. And we were there until we unfortunately lost each other, 1942. So the family background, if you, um, if you were to paint a picture of a family being brought up in this small Polish town, can you explain to us what, what somebody who had walked through the front door way before the outbreak of the war and the Germans, if they'd have just walked into your family, what would they have seen? My family, my father, rest his own, he was a man, his family, uh, there was three brothers. One survived with me in Birkenau, Auschwitz, Blizzin. Blizzin was my first concentration camp. After I'd lost my all, all my family, I was left on my own. My father, rest his soul, apparently jumped out of a window. I didn't know. But when I got from Blizzin, I was sent to Auschwitz. We arrived in Auschwitz, came off the wagons, it was late at night, it was dark. So they decided that we have to march to Birkenau, which was about less than a couple of hours walk. When we arrived there, it was too dark to do anything. So they just put us in the, in the, in the barrack. And the next morning, it took us to be tattooed. And you're showing us the number on your arm now, Ike. 
it's it's very hard to see it now, of course. There's a lot of wear and tear. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you at this stage? How old were you when you were I'd sent to about, Auschwitz? Th- uh, about 13 or 14. 13, yes. Yeah. B1209. Are we allowed to know how old you are now? Yes, I can tell you. Just about 94, 95 in May. And going back to your mum, can you describe her to us? What do you remember of her? Everything. She was about five foot something. She, in my eyes, for instance, on a Friday, she was preparing for Shabbos. That was all strictly kosher, mm-hmm. kosher. And she started making fish snoggy. She'd stand there, and the three of us, the three children, were waiting for the bones. Mm-hmm. You know, she cooked it, cleaned it all out and all that, and then chopped it all up. And you got a, a dish with the, the, you put the yoach and the juice. And uh, we were all standing around and waiting for it and started sucking mm. the marrow out of the bones and all that. And you end up with everybody sticking and all that. At the same time, she wanted us to go to bed. <laughs> Everything was just sticking. Amachaya. Oh. And were you there with siblings? A, a younger brother and an older, an older sister. And what were their names? Feigala. Who's your sister? sister. And my little brother, Pinchas, Pinyek. Pinyek is a Polish word. It's Pinchas. Was your mum a very traditional homemaker? Absolutely. Can you describe what the home was like? Well, the kitchen was at the back there, and the front was a shop. And what sort of shop was it? We sold furniture. We also do, did my father, the rest of so. He used to go to Warsaw and used to buy uh, the equipment to make bikes. But the wheels were made of wood because the, it was only about that wide. It was specifically made for racing. Ah, so that's why they were so thin. So it was a very specialist thing that, that yes, was made. Yes, yes, racing, because in Poland and Germany and Austria and, and in Europe, people did a lot of racing. So we had this. And it was a, it was a traditional Jewish home, was it? Was you, oh, were you, absolutely. Were you absolutely. religious? Was it... I, I mean, I started Cheder at three years old. Sunday school at three years old. I didn't go to Polish school till I was seven. That's where youngsters start at seven. When war broke out, I was at seven. I was in this Polish school twice because I wasn't a very good. Uh, <laughs> you were a good student. Student, <laughs> surely no. not. I wasn't. I hated. I, I hated Heider as well. Oh. My father used to drag me through the streets and I was screaming and shouting and all that to go to Heider. And did you live comfortably with the other Jews and non-Jews in your town? Was there any suggestion? There was always anti-Semitism. Once you started the 
Polish school is always anti-Semitism because they always, the Poles were being brought up because they were fanatic Poles, but they were anti-Semites all the time. Shredded or Palestinian Jews go to Palestine and all that sort of thing. As kids, we had to survive. Used to have to bring sweets, matzah, and all that to bribe the other kids. To bribe them to treat you better? So to leave you alone. Oh, I see. And many a times you'd be playing or running about and all that, and then kick your feet under you. No, they did the Palestinian. Because the Poles brought the children up to hate Jews because who killed Jesus? The Jews killed Jesus. That was being brought up all along. Now I thought to myself at the time, I wasn't even there, so why do they hate me? <laughs> did you speak Yiddish at home? Absolutely. And Polish as well, presumably, at school. Yiddish was what we used to call Mameloshen. That's all I ever knew. What does Mameloshen mean? Your mother's tongue. I see. Do you still think in Yiddish or dream in Yiddish, or is it English now for you? Oh, it's absolutely English. Because the Yiddish, I've not used Yiddish properly. I mean, when we first came over, we didn't know any English at all. So with the other boys and the girls, as refugees, we used to speak in Yiddish. So you, you've painted a picture for us of a warm, traditional, religious Jewish home in a Polish town where there was anti-Semitism, but that was how it was back then. So do you remember the first suggestion that the Germans were coming and things were going to be quite different, more than just the casual anti-Semitism that you'd experienced, but actually things were starting to become very well, difficult. Well, as soon as war broke out, everything stopped. Jews had to, and, and the businesses they had all closed down. Even before that, they used to stand outside Jewish shops and stop People go and do uh, buy things from a, a Jewish shop. Does that mean the Jewish business dwindled to nothing, or uh, was they close it down? Yeah, absolutely closed down. Mm. Yeah, everything, everything was closed. Did your parents have any sort of inkling that there was anything, any sort of this huge, terrible storm on the horizon, or were they happy we to? We never just... had any ideas. It suddenly, even before they declared war with Poland, they were already in Poland. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of them, some of the Poles, were part uh, German. You see, they, they lived, well, we all lived together. And, and do you remember, you know, as the mother in particular, we think of mothers as the, as the protective one. Obviously, your father wants to protect you as well. Did she give you any warnings about not going outside at certain times? Or were you, did she want to keep you all especially close? I mean, because you were a child, you know, you're still See, a boy that just wants I, to be I, a boy. I, rem I remember when all this stopped and all that, and then people then realised... There's not a lot that the Jewish fraternity can do. 
But I remember my mother as the song. They got um, my father as the song, because he was often on the Jewish committee, liaising with the with the German people. He had a very good job there, and uh, he managed to get hold of some cloth, and they made up. My father had a coat with a fur, his high boots, you know, leather, beautiful boots. And my little brother and I, we all had the same outfits. Didn't last long. It's... So, so can you talk us through when the Germans arrived in your town? Well, what happened there is you tried to avoid any German who was walking. You find a lot of them used to walk with an Alsatian on a lead. And as soon as you saw a German, you know the struggle. Because all they had to do, they've trained these Alsatians, they used to say, Judah! 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 And they, they let loose and they tore you to pieces. And how old were you at this stage? Eleven, yeah. And what, what's going through your head as a boy, as an eleven-year-old? You've had a, a, a situation where you have loving parents, you have siblings, you have a, a world that, that is, you know, is comforting and, and confined, and then suddenly this... You see, in those days, as a youngster and all yes. that, in those days, you didn't know what's going on around. It was all left to your parents. Nowadays, you get youngsters, you know, that's seven, eight, twelve, or whatever. They know what's going on in the world. We didn't know from around here, that's all we were allowed. And we perhaps play um, that with, with the nuts and all that, with other children. But as soon as so the war broke out, all this has stopped. So I remember my mother was so she, I don't know where she's got these things, that once we got our outfits, she used to saw some valuta, which is, uh, for instance, dollars, and she used to she used to saw them into, in case God forbid, if ever you get an opportunity, maybe something something like this, you might make for for some food or. or or whatever, or save your life. Did you manage to have a bar mitzvah? Yes, I had a bar mitzvah. There's no celebrations. No. What happened on so at your bar mitzvah, the coming of age ceremony for a Jewish boy at thirteen? What what did you do for your bar mitzvah? What do you remember of it? <laughs> Not a great deal. Probably got an extra uh, bit of uh, food. 
So by that time, things were fairly yeah, terrible. Yeah, I mean, there was no celebration or anything. Were you still at home at that stage? I was at home till 1942, because we were living in a part where it was part of the ghetto. All the Jews outside of the ghetto, wherever they lived, they all had to come into the ghetto. And then the Jews persons tried to step out of the ghetto. If you found, you got a bullet. So you stayed in the family home as as the Jews were all brought into a large ghetto. I stayed. St- we, we, we were fortunate enough. I was in my hometown, in my home, until 1942. What kind of deprivation did you experience? I mean, a mother wants to be able to feed her children. She wants to look after them. You have Germans everywhere. Did you have any kind of semblance of normal life? Did you have enough to eat? What, what was it like at home? No, well, they were rationed. But also because my father was part of the, the Jewish committee, you know, that he managed to get so that the rations, like the black bread, came out. Uh, some of it was delivered to our house. And we had to portion it all out to other people who had had a ticket for for a ration of a bread. And uh, so now and again, there was perhaps an extra one left. So we did better than most people. Tell us what happened then on that day in 1942, Ike, if you can, when you were, the Jews were all assembled into the town square. Yes, the, one morning, they, they made a, the Germans made a law that all Jews have to congregate in a certain square you can only take with you what you can carry in, in your hands. Everything else had to be left. So whatever you can carry. Huh? We congregated in that square and we were about five or six rows deep along lines like that. My father was on the front, I was behind him, and he turned around and said, stand on your tiptoes to make you look a bit taller, you know, a bit more important, which I did. Next to him was my mother, then my sister, and then my little brother. So we, st- we stood there, stood there for ages. We didn't know what was going on, what's going to happen. Eventually, the assessment of the Obersturmbahnführer, the German who was in charge of the, of the town, you know, that, that was his title. Obersturmbahnführer. Ja, ja. And uh, 
he started to count. One, two, three, four, five. They come to my father, my mother, and it went like that. All those on the left pointed out, was including my mother, my sister, little brother, and some, some other people, were marched out of that square with the soldiers with rifles at the back of them, marched out, turned left, never to be seen again. I was left with my father, who eventually, we were saved to go back into the ghetto. And then we were sent to a factory produce uh, bricks there. I was sent to, uh, to the workshop, the, the engineering, and I was doing all the cleaning and this and all this, that, the other. My father was worked on something else there, and we were, during the, during the night, we were lying on straw, and all that, that's all we had. So I'd lost my mother, my brother, my sister. Then my father disappeared, he jumped out of a window. I was then sent on my own to my first concentration camp, which was called Blizzin in Poland, where it was a camp, because the way assessed people were in charge of all this. I got a job working in a kitchen, cleaning the big, massive, big vats, you know, for, for the prisoners. And that was very, very fortunate because, first of all, I wasn't in the cold. And also I managed to scrape out some stuff from these vats, you know, that they ladle out to the prisoners. Yeah. And suddenly I developed typhus. And I was delirious, I didn't know anything about it. Within a few days, I don't know how many days or that, I got out of the barrack and I started walking. And I'm walking towards the, the kitchen. And when I got through the gate, I saw the Obersturmbahnführer with his, all his regalia and his revolver and all that. And I approached him 
and I asked him for his revolver. And he started to screaming, Was, 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 And there was a Jewish capo there who used to be looking after the other prisoners, run across, and he said to the Obersturmbaufere, because he was screaming, like, what did they ask for? And uh, he says, he's verrückt. Why had you asked the SS man for his revolver? Because I didn't know. I was delirious. I didn't know what, what I was doing. And was anyone there to look after you while you were so terribly ill? If they, if they would have known that I am ill, I'm still lying in the barrack. They were taking me out and shot me there and then. Did you get a chance to say goodbye to your mother and your brother and sister before you were separated from yeah. them? Did it all happen in a matter of seconds? As soon as he got like that, we didn't know. We weren't sure what happened to them. But obviously after the war, we know they were sent to Treblinka and be exterminated. We so, didn't know anything about Treblinka or anything mm -hmm. until perhaps when somebody escaped mm -hmm. and words got back at, at home, people realised that something... No, 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 no. Because they just... You see, in, in Birkenau, in Auschwitz, they were already more sophisticated. They had crematoriums, the four crematoriums in Birkenau. And the chimneys were glowing red night and day when they were disposing of the, of the people. But we didn't know what it was. The smell of burning bodies. So I was left into Birkenau, inside there. Unknown to us, two blocks down, they were experimenting with the twins. I decided I'll come out and I'll do a bit of walking, not too near the the electric fires, and I walked down and I noticed there's a, a women's camp there. They've all been shaved and all that. And I noticed one of my aunties was there, Ante Hanela. And she said, your father was here where you standing now, yesterday. I had a piece of bread and I threw it over for her. Obviously I've got to watch in case the, the fellows with the rifles. Um, and that's the last I saw. Uh, she says, your father was here and he was sent to a camp, Buna, which was a, 
they were producing slaves, send them as slaves. Uh, and they were producing stuff for the German army, you know, everything, everything that they need for the, um, and they didn't last very long there. Ike, you endured, is it right, four concentration camps? Yes, I had Brigine, the first one, Auschwitz, Birkenau, uh, and uh, Buchenwald in Germany. I was liberated in Czechoslovakia. I was due to be, you see, the, the, I'm jumping a bit, that the German war was already moving a little bit. You could see aeroplanes in the sky. They were very, very high. We didn't know what was happening at the time, but apparently it was, there was Americans and Russians and all that. They were trying to, to knock out the German lines. So they couldn't take us too far try to move us away. When you, you talk about, obviously we, we could spend hours, hours with you talking about the weeks, uh, and weeks years, and, and I would I would exalt anybody to go online and, and look up Ike's name, Ike Alterman. There is so much that you've spoken about and, and do so much for Holocaust education, so people never forget this. But at the time, when you talk about this, every time you revisit it, do you wonder to yourself how, as a young boy, you know, your parents have gone, that you don't know where they are, you say you, you believe in your heart you're not going to see your mother again and, and imagine your father. How do you account for the fact that you were able to survive? Was it because you said your mother was watching over you? Was it, was it just a series of coincidences? Sheer luck. Just sheer luck. And I put it down that my mother was guiding me. That suggests that by then you knew, you, meant, you mentioned to Lynn a moment ago, you didn't think that you would see her again when they, when they took your mum away from the town square. Oh, no. And yet you didn't know about Treblinka and places like that. Why, why were you so sure in your mind that you wouldn't see her again? Because there was... Words came back. Ah. Words came back. Mm. One or two people managed to escape and came back and sent uh, some of the stories back. And what, what actually did happen to her? They put them on in wagons. And they transported them in open wagons. When they got there to Treblinka, apparently what they did is put them on 
vehicles and they covered these and then moved them further on and what they did is they sent the exhaust into it to, to poison them and that's how they died. Ike, you joined um, a group of children who were brought over to the UK after the war. You became known as one of the Windermere boys. You had an opportunity to come and start life anew as it was in the UK. When you came here as a motherless boy with other boys, how much did you feel, considering what you had suffered, the loss of your parents as much as everything else, considering everything you've been through, what was the loss like for you when you came here to a new country, you didn't speak the language, and nobody there to kind of look after you that was well, a parent? We were, we were all, all those children that I came over with, they, all, they were all in the same pot as me. We weren't close. For instance, Sam Laskia, he was from Warsaw. When they started the ghettos and all that in Warsaw, his parents decided to send him and his sister to a smaller town. Perhaps there wasn't as much killing in, in Warsaw yet, unknown to me. He ended up in my hometown they were sent to with relations. The parents had relations in my hometown. That couple that they came to, to live with, I knew the family because the family lived in the same street as me. We had a, boy, a warehouse opposite to where his uncle and auntie lived. They also had a pub, and I knew them because I used to go to Chede for the, to the youngest of the boys of theirs, when we used to go to Chede together. Lynn talked about the fact that when you are with all these boys, you come over to the UK after the war, you've been through devastating experiences, you've lost your families. Was the decision that you would all have to look forward and think, we need to now make a life as opposed to talking about the families you had lost, talking about the mothers you had lost, the siblings, was the focus on the future because that was your way to survival? No, we, 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 weren't, we didn't know of any future then because we went to Windermere for rehabilitation. When we got to Windermere, it was paradise. We named it, this is paradise, because we never, ever thought we will survive war to come here and uh, we were living in the hostels oh gradually life changed a little bit we knew we lost the families not only have i lost my families from my hometown but i remember i was born in a small shtetl first and my grandmother, my grandfather, my aunties, my uncles, 
before we moved to my father's hometown. And they all disappeared, all perished. Not only that, in my mother's hometown, we found out last August when we went to Treblinka. When we got to, to, to Treblinka, we found out that all my aunties, my uncles, and all that from both sides, great uncles, cousins, they all disappeared there. Ike, you went on after the war. You got married, you raised a family, you had a successful business. You talked about um, your mother always being with you. Were there particular times during that part of your life when you're raising a family of your own that you particularly felt her presence either in the way that you were being a parent or in, you had daughters, maybe anything that came through that reminded you particularly of your mother as you were raising your own family? Not all the time, but I found myself very lucky it's only later on in life that I realized, people used to say, how did you manage to survive? Just sheer luck, stronger people than me, older people, people that, that knew a lot more in life than I have ever done. They all went. And when you look at your children and grandchildren, do you get flashes of your lost family? Every so often they'll do something, a mannerism or a word, or they'll sing a song that takes you back. No, to I, them. I, I believe that I beat Hitler because their preaching was to annihilate all Jews. It didn't succeed. When you were raising your family and building a business, building a home, the things that keep us busy and, you know, that's particularly when, when people have families, it's very, you know, it, it distracts from everything. Did you close off that part of your life? Because it wasn't until much later, you're an amazing Holocaust educator now, you seem to have gone everywhere and done anything with your lovely Diane at your side, you have, you've spoken to so many people. You forget, you... You're forgetting my late wife. Yes, of course, I was going to come back to mm. you. So your, your late wife and your family, tell us about the, the, the home that you, that you built up. Was your Holocaust experience kept away as you focused on being married and, and raising your family? Oh, raising family, yes, of course. It is, uh, it is a time that perhaps all the bad things you left a little bit like that. There's other things in life now that I've got to see to. I've got to bless them, two little girls. I had a lovely wife, Myra, and I've got other things to see to as well. So perhaps in a way, you left some things to the side a little bit because you had other things to try and make progress in life. How long were you and Myra married for? We got married in 1952. She passed away in 1991. Obviously, you're very open now about your experiences 
because of what you just said about building a life, building a home, was being a survivor part of your marriage? Did you talk about it? Or, you know, you said you're busy with other things. You very much closed the door on that because you wanted to focus on your family. I don't think I put things to one side, not realizing, but obviously I had to do because I had new, new, new children, new wife, and we've got to make and provide for them. I mean, my children were never told about the atrocities I've been through because I did not want to, for them to, to be heard. We couldn't bring ourselves to open up and speak to them about some of the things any father or mother, you tried to protect the younger one, younger generation, for them not to, uh, God forbid, get upset and, and know about these things, to protect them. I couldn't speak, go out and speak to anybody uh, like I do now. So okay. everything takes its time, its own time. Did you feel you had to wait till they could process it and you could process it as well so that you could, yeah. they were at a little yeah. bit of an older age so they could uh, understand and not be too damaged by what you were going to tell them? I was very proud of the fact that uh, I managed to open a business I was a member of the London Diamond Balls, and that was very prestigious to me because they knew I was an honest man. I could have made a lot more money, but my way was straight. Once you started, you decide, you made a decision that you were ready to talk about your experiences? Gradually, some of the boys, Jack Eisenberg, Maya Bomstein. These were the boys who were with you in Windermere, other survivors? Yes, and they were doing the work while I was trying to do other things. But once they passed on, I thought, well, it's my turn now to try and let the world know what went on. You mentioned a trip that you went on this summer. Can you tell us about it? Well, I was fortunate enough because I didn't believe there is any records there because everything was hidden. There's no records of anything. But I got together with uh, Rafi, who's a personal friend of mine, a great, great guy, and he helped me a great deal about going and we found records. This is records of what happened to your mum and to your brother and sister? Yeah. yeah. So you found records that confirmed everything that you believed, which was that your mum and your brother and sister had been taken to Treblinka, which was obviously, an for those that don't know, an infamous Nazi concentration camp devoted. It was a pure killing centre. Absolutely. People were sent there. But not only that, I also found on my mother's side, where I was born, all the families from Ozhariv were sent there at the same time. So they were all sent to Treblinka. Yeah. Um, 
it was somewhere that there was no chance to work or to even no, hang no, on no, to no, some no. kind of survival. Basically just to exterminate. And uh, as Lynn said, you made the trip this summer, having established for definite that your mother and your brother and sister were sent there, you made the decision that you had to go back. What were you thinking when you made that decision? What were you hoping to achieve by making that trip? I wanted to go and say Kaddish. The Jewish memorial prayer? Yeah. And never had the opportunity before that. And I had to go and be with him. So Treblinka is, as a memorial, there are stones everywhere with the names of lost communities, including your hometown, where your mum came from. And you stood there and you said the Kaddish prayer. It's impossible to imagine if you can tell us what you felt as you were saying those words at Treblinka, the place where your beloved mother and your siblings, for no reason other than being Jewish, were ripped from the family, were taken there. What was in your mind as you said these memorial words? I broke down. I broke down, but I felt I was with him. I just went to see my family. This was how many years after you had last seen your mother that you stood there and said... The last time I saw them was 1942. So you were accompanied on this trip by Diane and by your daughter and granddaughter. Mm. How did that feel, connecting up the circle of the family? There was so much family that had been lost. It's brought me so much closer to them. I feel that I've done my duty by going there to be with them. And I was at every step there. I was with them. And since then, since that trip in August, have you been more at peace with yourself? Yeah. yeah. It was a duty for me that I wanted to achieve to go there and be with him and feel as if I am with him. Every day that passes is a day further away from the Holocaust and from the Second World War. How do we tell our children? How do we tell humanity what you and your family suffered? Can you guide us for the people that are listening? What, what is the message? The message is don't stop to try and educate and make sure it goes forward that people learn more and more. Doesn't matter how many times I've got to do it. I will do it as long as my legs will take me. Ike, it's been a great privilege to talk to you and to listen to your story. And what piece of advice do you give to people, to humanity? Because your words are so important to us. You are the words of history. It's to be honest. Be proud what you can achieve and help others to achieve. I brought my children up and says, don't ever think as people, friends, are better than you. Remember, treat people the way you like to be treated yourself. 
There's nobody better than you in your life. But remember, there's nobody worse than you. You're a wise man, Ike, and it's been our great, great privilege to spend time in your company. You've been listening to the Jewish Mother Me podcast. My name's Angela Epstein. I'm Lynn Dover. And this was brought to us by our producer, Phil Salter from Northern Air Productions. If you want to learn more about Ike's story, you can find it, gosh, in so many places. If you Google Ike's name, Ike Alterman, you will find so much about what Ike has spoken about and cannot stress that enough go and read and listen to the things that he said and thank you again for joining us and this has been Jewish Mother Me Tit me sei vorsammen, und dort sei es auf der Brinkerdor. geht es auf every Jew, every good place. Whoever gets there, a sister, a sister, a brother, a father, a mother, is left there forever. And that is when they poison them and uh, that's their end. God bless you.